a greater percentage of the intensity load for most, I think, working professionals, amateurs, should be allocated to the bike. The Triathlon Show 202. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Conrad Geringer, who is a coach and author of the book The Working Triathlete, which is also the name of his business and website. We discuss how to maximize the limited training time that most amateur athletes have, and how to make the most of uh, a lower volume training pl- program that uh, that most of you are forced to have. Before we get into this discussion, however, big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Take their free online sweat test and that will consist of a quiz of 10 questions, I believe, that you can answer in just a few minutes time and nothing that you need to measure or anything like that. You can answer it based on things that should already be pretty clear to you once you think for a second or two about it. And that will give you a validated estimate for how much you sweat and how much sodium you lose in your sweats, which is really, really important information to have, especially when racing in hot or humid climates. And based on this information, you will also get a free personalized hydration strategy that you can use right away, whichever electrolyte products you end up using. But if you want to use precision hydration products, then you can try your first box or tube for free with the promo code that triathlon show, all one word, all caps. And again, that URL is precisionhydration.com. Also, big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com. That's R-O-K-A dot com. They are the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear. And over the last year or two, Roka have really focused a lot of attention and innovation in that performance eyewear category, but also branching out to making products like prescription glasses, blue light blocking glasses and uh, just casual streetwear sunglasses so uh, there's a mix of style and performance there definitely make sure you go and check out all that they have to offer i personally love their aviator sunglasses as well as uh, on the more training performance side the sl series which are great great glasses as well so check them out on roca.com and take 20 percent off your order with the promo code tts all caps Without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Conrad Geringer. Welcome to that Triathlon Show, Conrad. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Very well as well. Thank you. And uh, at this point, I also want to say thank you to to Rob, who introduced us. Uh, Rob Sleemaker, who's a past uh, guest of the show. So, so thank you, Rob. We're, Conrad and I met up in, in Nice and... Uh, had a great, uh, great dinner out and discussed triathlon, and uh, here we are now recording a, a podcast. Yes, yes. Thanks, thanks for the connection, Rob. And uh, yes, definitely had a good time in Nice at the World Champs. I guess it was two weekends ago. Um, it's great just being part of that celebration and joining all the other, you know, committed athletes in the world. And uh, yeah, that was a, a great dinner. And I certainly, I love talking about triathlon. So. Uh, yeah, certainly enjoyed our, our time and our conversation. Yeah, yeah, time time flies, and uh, we'll 
probably have to make this conversation a, a little bit shorter because otherwise it will be just way too long for a podcast. So, uh, but well, we're, we'll do our best and we have already uh, selected uh, how to scope out this episode with this being mostly about how to train as a time-crunched athlete, which is something that you, you specialize in. So why don't you like first start with give us an overview of who you are and uh, how you've come to specialize in, in coaching these kinds of athletes? Sure. So I'm uh, based out of the United States and I've been a lifelong endurance athlete and uh, I am currently a triathlon coach, um, coach uh, a number of athletes all over the world. And just, I think throughout my whole life, I've been interested in, in people who have the ability to achieve more. And, you know, whether that's an Elon Musk or, or whoever, uh, a prolific author and, and what kind of separates these people. And I think it tends to be deliberate practice and, and emphasizing the fundamentals. And when one does that, they can, I think, be more efficient and they tend to simply achieve more. So in, in triathlon, it's interesting because most triathletes are, in fact, not professionals there amateurs and you know the very concept of being an amateur it insinuates that you have probably a full-time job and other responsibilities so it precludes you from training like a professional with you know the 20 to 40 plus hours per week of training so it's just not feasible or realistic but you know these same uh, amateurs they, they want to do well the type a personality is very common in triathlon but um you know, most athletes also have other life stressors. So uh, what what I am most interested in is is sort of how to manipulate microcycles and macrocycles in order to maximize performance on race day within the confines of one's life. So the goal is not to accrue an, an impressive training log and because that's not what determines race results. What determines race results is fitness and the ability to perform and uh you know, this, I, I think that volume is, is certainly important, but, you know, we have to be realistic and um, identify or recognize the fact that most people would, they have to scale their training so that it, it fits their life. Um, so, so, so to frame this, what uh, would the typical amateur athlete that has a full-time job, what, what sort of volume when, when you're coaching them, do you, do you see them then do? And let's say that, well, you, you can take it for whatever distance you, you want. And it might differ for the full distance to the sprint distance, but what is typical or a couple of typical examples? Sure. So certainly it depends on the distance and maybe even more importantly, it depends on the athlete's life schedule, but you know, as, as a general, as a minimum, I think, you know, six hours is certainly the minimum for, you know, I, I think performing well in a sprint triathlon. I'm talking about performing reasonably well, but, you know, I think that 10 hour, eight to 10 hours is, I found to be a, a good solid time frame for good performance in sprint Olympics all the way up to 70.3 for certain individuals. Um, and then for Ironman, I think a running average of, of 10 hours plus, you do want to do a block. You have to respect the, the iron distance and, you know, bumping it up to 14 hours for 
you know, say a race specific block where you're doing a key endurance ride and, and run is realistic for, for most people. Some guys can do it on 10 to 12, but you know, you do want to accrue race specific volume if, if you're focusing on Ironman. Um, but still, I, th- I think that that's lower than maybe a, most athletes execute. Um, so I, in general, I'm an advocate of really just working on the engine first and honing that, that high end fitness. So boosting the key metrics, aerobic capacity and, and functional threshold power. And then later on, moving on to the race specific work. However, I think that, you know, a relent for an Ironman specifically, people maybe overemphasize the necessity of race specific works. So I'm talking about massive volume for weeks and weeks and weeks. I think when, once you create the foundation of fitness that, you know, you, you don't need to do, you know, 10 hundred milers. I think, you know, doing targeted workouts of three to four hours and, and a couple of rides more than that um, is, is actually sufficient for, for most people. And it, it'll, I think that it's easier for people to assimilate triathlon into their lives when they uh, strive for efficiency. Um, but all of this is really in the context of the individual's life because everybody's different. And, you know, I, I'm not advocating that Jan Ferdino should cut his volume, you know, down to 15 to 20 hour per weeks because uh, volume is certainly beneficial. But, you know, I'm talking about how to structure training if one wants to maximize potential within this time-strapped life. And uh, so that that's really the ultimate goal of of what I'm, I focus on. So, so it's what I'm, I'm interested in because, you know, a, a lot of people have th- their, they lack time. They might have all the motivation in the world, but they still want to perform in, in other areas of their lives. Yeah. You, you've mentioned uh, in, in our conversations and then in our email exchanges that it's, it's not, it's not a hack. It's not a shortcut. It's, it's just uh, pure and simple trying to make the most of the, of the available time that you, that you have. So uh, that's uh, clear that the, that's the perspective you're coming from. And uh, the Alfredino example is, is, is a good one. It's uh, not, not for him, but, but for working professionals, uh, for sure it is because if they try to do what Jan does, they would die after a week. It would be impossible to do that. They wouldn't get to sleep. <laughs> right. So, so when we, when we are, if, if we are this uh, time strapped athlete, what are the principles then that goes into making the most of of the time that we have available on a sort of lower volume plan as we're discussing now? Sure. So the overarching goal is to extract the the fitness fitness benefits from workouts as efficiently as possible. Um, so you know this means having a purpose for each workout and and doing the work that advances the fitness and then scaling the rest because I mean, fitness is not a bank account that increases proportionally to the number of hours we spend working out. I know the traditional endurance model, it does emphasize volume and, and, but you know, we aren't robots or algorithms. We're biological organisms. And ultimately what we want to do is training is generate the stimulus. And then obviously our body responds by, 
inciting adaptations uh, to, to the work that we do. Um, so as some general principles, um, when, when you're looking to really maximize the fitness benefit relative to the time investment, I think number one is that is a concept that frequency trumps uh, occasional big days. So frequency and consistency is, is important because the frequent stimulus, it, it leads the body to incite these adaptations more frequently. Um, it leads to more total quality work and, and higher volume with, with less trauma on the body. Because I do think that trauma and potential for injury increases in a more or less exponential manner with the duration of the sessions. Um, so when you work out more frequently, it's, it's, it ends up being more convenient and it's easier to carve out time blocks. Um, and you have more agility with, with training. So, you know, you can, once you realize that there is a massive benefit to, you know, workouts that are less than an hour, you, you can, it's more easy to, to drop in these, these workouts to take advantage of smaller time blocks within training. But, um, I do think that striving in general for at least three bikes a week is important. Um, four is better. At least four runs in a week, you know, slightly more is better. And then d depending on one's swimming ability and, and goals, I think two is, is a minimum uh, number of times to swim each week. And then three to four is obviously is certainly better, but uh, I think scaling the workouts and, and, peeling back the duration of each of these uh, individual workouts so that you increase the frequency and hit those uh, those targets in training, i.e. the number of sessions within each discipline each week. I think that's more important than, honestly, overall volume uh, for, for various reasons, convenience. But also, I think that it inspires consistency because um, one – thing that I found coaching individuals is that many people have th this idea that, you know, if I can't do this workout precisely as prescribed, I'm not going to do anything. Um, and we want to try to avoid that. So I, I, emphasizing frequency and shortening the session, I, th I think it's mentally easier for people to uh, sort of tackle a training plan when that's the case. And that inspires frequency and consistency. And, and when you're consistent, that's when you get better. So if you're consistent over time, that's how people get fast. Doing crash training does not lead to long-term success. So it's really about manipulating the plan. So there's a psychological component to it as well. Where sort of the frequency and consistency, you always want to strive for the path of least resistance. So, so you know, those are the reasons I think consistency and or specifically frequency is, is the most important component of a, uh, a good sustainable training plan. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with all of those. And, and it's uh, actually very easy to do on the bike and run in particular, I, because most uh, time strapped athletes, they do have the ability to train indoors now. So, so you can just jump, jump on the bike and, and do a quick 45 minute session. And, and there you go. And the same for the run 30 to 45 minutes and you, you have a good, good session done. And, uh, the swim is a bit more difficult depending on where you live, of course, but, uh, that's obviously why you have less frequent swimming in, in that sort of, uh, 
template week that you described with, with the frequency of the different disciplines and also is the shortest discipline in, in a triathlon, relatively speaking. So, so it makes sense to, to focus more on where you can make the, the bigger, bigger difference. So uh, definitely agree with, uh, with, uh, with all of that. Exactly. And certainly one needs to take into consideration one's talents and one's strengths and one lim- one's limiters and also one's ultimate goals in, in the specific race that they're training for. Um, you know, if one is a good swimmer, really don't need to swim that much. And, and if they want to do long course, especially, uh, it's, it's going to have the smallest impact to their day. Uh, you know, the, the difference between one's maximum potential swim versus their, you know, sort of, I'm going to swim twice a week swim is, is probably not more than five minutes in an Ironman. Um, a day that is ranges from eight hours to 17. It's, it's not that, you know, large of a deal. And in most instances, emphasizing the bike is going to, uh, just lead to a, a better race. The, there's much more time to be gained by honing cycling fitness and run fitness than there is swimming fitness. That isn't to say the swim isn't important, especially for beginners, because they oftentimes, everybody, a lot of people in their first triathlon, they panic. And so you certainly have to respect the swim and the fact that it's a high stress uh, discipline. So certain people certainly need to swim more, more often. Um, But in the hierarchy of importance, I do think that the the bike and, and the the run is, is more important, especially for a time-strapped yeah. individual. Um, but you're, you're obviously right. You mentioned indoor riding and, and the big, one of the most important considerations when it comes to uh, scaling training to one's life is, is trying to eliminate as much prep time and travel time as possible. So, so that's why one of the reasons, you know, it's pretty much mandated that if, if I coach somebody that they should get an indoor trainer and ideally a power meter, just because you have the ability to execute targeted sessions with no prep time. You don't have to worry about traffic lights or traveling to a, a country road that uh, you know, one can actually execute intervals on. Um, you can literally roll out of bed, hop on the trainer and then execute it a, targeted workout. So, um, that indoor riding is, is pretty much essential at this point. And most professionals are, they buy in now it's, it's a normal thing. It isn't some peripheral, uh, sort of, you know, exotic thing. Everybody is, is riding indoors just because of the, uh, effectiveness and, and the ability to save time. Um, but so that's important. And obviously there are certain brick workouts one can do to save time. I think of the swim run brick is one of the most time efficient workout sessions. Uh, you know, you swim, focus, targeted session, and then immediately just run. And, and if we're talking about how to streamline it and, and, you know, take the path of least resistance, that's a good uh, sort of bread and butter session and concept to apply to the training plan. And, um, you know, there are other approaches as well. So the Vasa swimmer or swim trainer is um, a good way to, to supplement 
um, swim workout. So that's an indoor. It sort of looks like a rowing machine, but you're on your belly and you're you're um, use, you're doing a swim motion. And um, it is there have been a lot of athletes who, in order to build swim strength and hone technique, they've uh, supplemented their swim training with the Vasa, or they have replaced sessions with with the Vasa and. I do. So I own one and with the athletes I coach, we, I put them on it and it's great for, uh, sort of working on technique, which is actually pretty darn important in, uh, swimming because it allows the athlete to really just focus on the pool and, you know, accelerating through that pool, focusing on getting that forearm vertical and finding sort of the sweet spot to where they, uh, can generate power. So a lot of times, triathletes that kind of lack shoulder flexibility and they can't do that early vertical forearm because it applies a lot of load to that shoulder. They just simply can't do it. So, you know, the Vasa, you can kind of play around and, and learn what a good catch and pull feels like. And, um, and also even probably more, uh, beneficial is, is just the strength building, uh, benefits of, of using the Vasa. You, you can set the resistance up and down and, you can truly execute uh, an incredible workout on that machine in, in a short amount of time. Um, but certainly you need to get on the in the water as well and focus on technique and, and work on things like kicking and, and floating wall body position. But, uh, you know, those are just a couple of tools that many of the athletes I work with take advantage of in order to uh, uh, save time. And uh, let's talk a little bit about how you structure in intensity and, and key sessions within the typical training week. How, what does that look like for somebody who, who is not training the 20, 25, 30 hours of a professional athlete? Sure. So when it comes to intensity, key intensity sessions, a greater percentage of the intensity load for most, I think, working professionals, amateurs should be allocated to the bike for a few reasons. Uh, number one, you can go very hard on the bike consistently, whereas for, for the run, most people, it's, it's the discipline that they get injured within most often. So allocating intensity to the bike makes sense just from a, a perspective of injury prevention. Um, but you so you can go hard more often but i i also think that psych the bike one actually benefits a lot from intensity uh, most of the athletes i work with when i start working with them there's a massive delta for example between their threshold cycling heart rate and their run heart rate which which is normal and that holds true but sometimes there are extreme differences and, and the limiter is not necessarily their cardiorespiratory fitness it's it's that cycling strength, that muscular strength. So, what would an example be of an extreme delta versus when you have worked with the athlete and and you think that they are in balance? So, in general, after one trains, I, I tend to see maybe a ten beats per minute delta, ten to fifteen. But I, I've I've literally well, this year uh, I started working with an athlete and did the threshold test and. It was in the upper 120s was his threshold cycling heart rate. And then his uh, his run threshold heart rate was closer to 170. Um, so that just sort of, and, and there are 
certain reasons for that. You know, it's possible that, you know, didn't, you didn't know how to put out power, you know, appropriately on the bike, didn't realize how hard one should go on the bike. But, you know, oftentimes, you know, might see a Delta, somebody's, you know, threshold heart rate might be 140 and they're, and then their running threshold heart rate would be in the 160s, which I do think that that is, is too much. And as cycling strength improves, that Delta uh, minimizes. Um, so I do think that higher intensity sessions, they're just efficient for building cycling fitness. And especially in a discipline where it's common for people to allocate a lot of time. I think that in the traditional, maybe triathlon training model, the cycling volume is, is massive um, because cyclists, professional cyclists, they put in massive training load because, because they can, they have the luxury of spending a lot of time in zone one, zone two, sort of honing that foundational base fitness on the bike. But triathletes, we have to balance three sports. And when it comes to cycling fitness, you can make massive gains by doing focused work, ideally indoors with a power meter. But, um, and you know, that, I'm talking about starting training with an eye towards getting as fast as possible. I mean, there's a certain enjoyment to going out and riding your bike five hours with your friends and, and stopping at the cafe and, and all that. But, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you know, if one is fiercely goal oriented and wants to be brutally efficient, then really the bike is one discipline where you can have a purpose for each session that includes some intensity. Um, so, so, so what does that look like? So, so my big, uh, what I'm particularly interested in is, is sort of what is the minimum time that one needs to spend within a certain zone in order to, you know, incite that intracellular signaling that actually leads to, uh, improved fitness. And we have some ideas on, um, sort of what the total, interval volume should be within a certain workout. So for example, VO2 workouts, uh, aerobic capacity workouts where you're spending time at say 110, 220% of your functional threshold power around 20 minutes total is probably enough. So maybe that looks five by four minutes, you know, six by three minutes at VO2 at with 50 to hundred percent of the interval duration time as the rest interval is, extremely effective. And once you start, you know, if you're going to try to do 40 minutes worth of VO2 intervals within a workout, I mean, the gains are going to become so marginal. And at a certain point, you are not going to get a benefit from the workout because you're just going to uh, fatigue yourself and you can just hurt yourself. So um, the idea is to literally just warm up and then get the work in. So for VO2 intervals, again, say, call it 18 to 22 minutes is probably the sweet spot. For a, a sweet spot workout, I mean, you can spend a lot of time at sweet spot, but if one has, say, 50 minutes during the week uh, for each cycling session, you can spend you know 30 to 40 minutes at sweet spot. You can break it up however you want. Uh, say two by 20, you can do 40 minutes of over under sweet spot. But, you know, the idea is to figure out, you know, what's the minimum load 
than I can apply to my body while still getting a very, very good benefit from the workout. Um, so that, that's sort of the context with which I view, uh, cycling training. So, so during the week sessions are short, they tend to be short for, for most athletes. And then even the key endurance session, which usually happens on the weekends for most athletes, even that should be chock full of intervals. So for 70.3 training, um, you know, it's, I'm an advocate of, of accruing 90 minutes to two hours at 70.3 intensity for, for the longer rides. Um, so, you know, that can look like a short warm up and then you know, two by 45 minutes at 80 to 85% of their functional threshold power. And when you do this, you know, you get very used to, uh, putting out power on the bike. And when the race rolls around, you're not shocked or surprised at, at the power that, you know, you put out. Whereas if you were pedaling in zone two all the time and, you know, all of a sudden maybe Ironman intensity might feel too hard. So, you know, it, it, there are fitness benefits from working at, at higher intensities. And, and when I talk about high intensity, I, I, mean, I usually think of it as say upper zone three and above, um, but there's also psychological benefits as well. And what about the, the swim and the run? If uh, the bike is where you say that the most intensity is allocated, how do you allocate it on the swim and the, and the run? Sure. So for, for the run, um, volume is, is the most important component of, of running. And part of that is because running is highly traumatic in nature and it as I said before, it's a discipline people get injured in most often. Um, so for, for the run, the idea is to maximize volume, but minimize the potential for injury. And you want to build durability and resiliency in the run. And that comes through volume. So spending time on your feet. So I'm a benefit of run frequency um, rather than doing this, you know, three run a week model where one is a long run, one is a tempo run, one is uh, a track session. I think that people just get injured too much when they do that. So, uh, but I, I will say that obviously for high level athletes and I coach some sort of elite athletes and for them, obviously you need to cover the bases in, in the run. And I think that, you know, having a steady diet of tempo runs and, and, you know, the traditional repetitions, you know, six by 800 meters, that kind of work at least once a week is, is important. If one wants to be, you know, world-class in, in the Olympic distance triathlon, you need to uh, integrate high intensity running. But for most age groupers who maybe don't have a, a running background, the emphasis is on building volume and, you know, being careful and you could do hills. Hills is a, is a great way to build strength with, um, you know, while minimizing trauma on the body because there's just less force and weight that's, you know, the body has to uh, withstand. I mean, every step you take when you come down, uh, you know, th that shock goes through your whole body. But if you run up a hill, that's you can kind of circumvent that. So for uh, people who are injury prone, love doing hill reps. Uh, actually on the, on the treadmill, it's a great, great way to do that because then you don't have the downhill uh, component of that where you have to return to the bottom of the hill. So doing something like uh, cruise intervals where 
say, say two minutes flat and then two minutes uphill and then two minutes flat again. And that's one interval. You can do that six times or, or something like that. Then uh, it's a great way to integrate intensity without, you know, accruing trauma. But uh, um, so I guess the, the key principles for run training is just like in general, emphasize frequency and, and, and volume over intensity. And, and once you reach a high level or you are running at least say, you know, 25 to 30 miles a week, then one can start think about thinking about integrating higher intensity uh, sessions within the run. But there's just so many benefits just to be had by getting up to that 25 to 30 mile per week threshold. Um, and for the swim, uh, if you're swimming infrequently, then you should be, every swim should have at least some type of intensity component to it. So I do think that in the swim technique does tend to trump fitness. However, you're not going to be able to hold your technique without fitness. So you have to balance it all. I think that for time strapped triathletes that threshold swim workouts are probably one of the best bangs for the buck. So, you know, doing once say 100 to 200, meter intervals with with short rest having that sort of as a good bread and butter session that's done weekly is important but i do think that really still being obsessed with technique is probably the most important thing for time strapped uh, triathletes so you know if you're swimming three times a week it's good to have an endurance session where you're swimming longer intervals because really triathletes are endurance swimmers. Um, so longer intervals, say three to 500 plus meters uh, with short rest, um, having that threshold session where, you know, you might be accruing at a minimum 1000 meters in the main set, but you know, you can go up to 2000, 3000 meters if you're advanced. Uh, and then having one session that's sort of a hybrid, maybe technique, um, intensity workout is is probably the most beneficial third session that one can integrate where you're thinking about form limiters your dress you're doing drills that are actually productive that have a purpose um so that's those are the i think the three most important sessions to be done consistently and then you can supplement i mean if you have 20 extra minutes the swim is something where free you benefit from frequency simply because it's technique based technique based disciplines the more often you can engage in them, the better. Uh, maintaining that feel for the water is important. Um, but, you know, you can also supplement it, like I talked about before, with, you know, the Vasa training. And I, I've talked to various coaches and, and, you know, some of them take the approach, certain athletes that simply don't have access to a pool. And, and you know, speaking with uh, Rob, the, who, who connected us, he, he uh, Sam Gaday, he, he's – lives in Scandinavia and he just simply does not have access to a pool. So he does basically a hundred percent of his, uh, work, swim work on the Vasa, which is kind of an interesting approach, but really, so he can spend 60 minutes, which is, you know, a fairly long time to be on the Vasa, but it's just all beneficial work and, and there's no travel to prep time. So, you know, I do work with athletes and, and we supplement the, the swim training with Vasa training and, and, you know, you can get a great workout 
in on the bus in 15 minutes and uh, you're increasing that frequency of, of stimulus and you're really boosting that swim strength with, with which translates very well, especially to open water. Yeah, perfect. And uh, going back a bit to the bike then, because you, you gave us your bread and butter workouts for uh, the run of the swim. And you sort of already mentioned a, a couple of workouts, the VO2, the, the sweet spot and, and the 7.3 race pace intervals, if that's your goal event. But uh, just to, uh, to make it clear, how would you structure the biking of the week? What would be the sessions in a, in a typical training week that, that you would have in there? So for a key intensity session, so I'm a big fan of, of sweet spot work. It's just, uh, so that's upper zone three, call it, you know, 88 to 94% of your functional threshold power and, and doing long intervals at sweet spot intensity is a great way to spend time. It isn't super traumatic on the body. You can, you know, if cycling was your soul discipline you probably do it almost every day um and like to try to accrue at least 40 minutes at that effort within you know a typical work a key intensity session during the week that's a great session uh and then so we have vo2 sessions as well and those are structured uh to be performed at extremely high intensities I i think most people probably don't go hard enough on these things. Uh, they shouldn't be done at 105% of FTP. They should be done higher. And um, so, so they should be pretty darn, they should hurt. And, you know, they shouldn't be all out, but they should be pretty darn close. And I like to keep those intervals short. So, you know, at the beginning, starting at, you know, two minutes, 30 seconds. And then I don't like to go more than five minutes for VO2 intervals. But, um, you know, there actually have been studies done trying to figure out, well, what's the ideal interval duration for these VO2 sessions? And, uh, you know, whatever protocol that they had in in the study, 30 seconds, 30 seconds, pretty much all out with with equal rest or or 50 percent of the interval duration rest was actually incredibly effective. So so one workout that I... uh, prescribed fairly often is our literally 30 second uh, VO2 interval. So 10 by 30 seconds at 120 to 130% of uh, FTP with equal recovery. Uh, So you're doing 10 of those, then you're resting for three minutes and then you're repeating that set. So you're doing 10 more intervals, 30 seconds at 120 to 130% of FTP and with 30 seconds rest. And so you do that set three times. So, you know, it ends up being just 15 minutes really at uh, VO2 intensity, but, but because the interval, the rest interval is so short, your uh, actually, your heart rate is elevated the whole time. So if you're doing five by five minutes, you know, your heart rate is, is pretty much resetting back to maybe, you know, zone two, in between the the intervals, but you know, if you keep the rest short and the intervals are also short, you can recover in between each interval to the extent that you would be able to then hit VO2 intensity on the next interval, but you're still keeping your, your heart rate elevated and, and you can uh, sort of reap the benefits of the VO2 workout uh, 
probably more efficiently. Um, so, so we have sweet spot workouts, VO2 workouts, and then, you know, yeah, you have threshold workouts and I probably do these l- least often, but, you know, things like three by 10 or two by 15 minutes at functional threshold power, which is very high intensity. Uh, those are good workouts to do um, as well. But again, I think that sweet spot and VO2 work is is probably more important than spending time exactly at 100% of, of threshold. Um, but so those are important. I'm also a big fan of cadence works, particularly low cadence, just to build that strength. Um, so doing intervals like uh, two minutes at say 95% of FTP, but at 50 RPMs. And then immediately after that two minute interval, doing two minutes at 90, 95% of FTP at a very high uh, cadence. So say 110 RPM. So contrasting those two, that is a very good workout because when we're riding outside, cadence is constantly changing and it's good to have the ability to uh, sort of be agile in, in what kind of cadence you feel comfortable at. So benefits of low cadence, it builds that strength, but it also, you know, it, it really increases your, your ability to, you know, when you go up a hill in, in training outdoors, it it feels natural and, and you don't overly fatigue yourself. It isn't a new stimulus in the race. So you want to practice cadences, as well. And, and you can practice cadences within a sweet spot workout, you know, five minutes. If you're doing a 20 minute sweet spot interval, five minutes, low cadence, say 60 RPM, and then five minutes, 95 to 105% or 105 uh, RPMs for, for that cadence and then just alternate. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And, uh, and there are a lot of um, muscular recruitment or muscle fiber recruitment benefits to to varying the cadences as well so so i'm totally totally in agreement there um let's uh talk a little bit then about uh you mentioned there that uh, depending on the strengths and weaknesses of the athlete you might shift things around with the volume and how you allocate the time to the different disciplines can you elaborate on on that and what athletes should think about when it comes to that time allocation between different disciplines Yes. So if if there are obvious limiters, uh, sort of in an athlete's toolbox, um, and, and one way to establish where your weaknesses are is to compare your, uh, results in a race, um, within each discipline relative to the field. So if it, you know, if you're coming out of the water in the bottom 10% of the field in a triathlon, but you're in the top 50% or the top 20% in, in the other disciplines, Obviously, the swim is a weakness. So, so then you have to ask yourself, what is what? What are the potential? Uh, how much can I improve in this discipline, and how will it translate to actual race performance? So, you know, if somebody is wants to maximize their potential in draft legal uh, Olympic distance racing, well, you have to be a great swimmer and you have to be a great runner. Um, so. Obviously, for those athletes, you need to be swimming more than two to three times a week. If you truly want to, you know, swim an 18, 19 minute, 1500 meter swim, then you need to spend time in the water and uh, you can't get by with two to three swims because you have to make that top pack 
Um, and also the run is extremely important as well. So if one run running, I think much like swimming benefits from, from some time. So cycling, you, you, there isn't a whole lot of technique to it. There isn't really a whole lot of, I think, economy. I don't think you can really improve your, your form all that much on the bike, although it's possible, but for, for running and swimming, especially, I think it takes a little bit of time to uh, sort of reach one's potential um, and to blossom, so to speak. So for, for people who are just starting out in triathlon and maybe they have a swim background, well, you know, those individuals, we might try to emphasize the run a little bit more, but do it intelligently. So just focus on frequency of the run more allocate a little bit more load to the run in order to get up to that kind of what I talked about before you want to get up to 25 to 30 miles per week on the run. And then if you want to be competitive, you have to run more than that. Um, you know, at the professional level there, I don't think there's a pro running less than 50 miles a week. Most of them are probably in more than that, but I think that's, there is a point of diminishing returns somewhere in there, probably that 40 mile per week range. And, you know, you have to figure out based on one's sort of individual talents and limiters and goals, how to allocate load across disciplines. So, but, you know, I mean, it's obvious if you're weak in a discipline, then you should really focus on that discipline if, if possible. But you know, sometimes it's there are there's low hanging fruit. What does that What does that mean pract practically, though? If we look at a, a program, and let's say a very like sort of standard week might be two swims, three bikes, and and four runs, as you mentioned in the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, even something that many listeners would would be perhaps more used to would be free workouts of each discipline, so free, free, free. Mm -hmm. But if we have a weakness in say the swim that we really want to work on. Uh, how and you don't have any more time to use so you need to to sort of skew your schedule somehow and take time from from another discipline how far can you go and uh, for how long can you do that do you work in block periodization in that way or do you uh, do you do that for for an extended period of time and if so how do you reallocate the time between disciplines so that you don't lose too much in the other disciplines either gotcha so yes block training is is great for you know improving within each discipline and and the benefit of block training is that those gains tend to linger so the winter is a great time to do this or the off season where you pick a weakness and then you just you attack it um so you peel back you eliminate a run session you replace if you want to get good at swimming maybe you do have to peel back uh you have to eliminate or or scale back uh a run I, and you just replace it with with a, a swim session so um that is a great approach as a running as a general rule i would be weary of scaling back cycling sessions uh for most age groupers simply because the bike is extremely important so uh, i would say if you're going to swap time and there's no way to create more time then 
peeling back the duration of a run or replacing a run with a swim if one wants to add a swim session is is a good approach. Um, but the other thing is is don't don't forget that especially for the swim you can reap palpable benefits just by spending you know twenty minutes in the water. So so just add one or two short twenty to thirty minute swim sessions and you'll probably improve because a lot of swimming is a feel for the water. So, you know, as soon as you hop in the water, you're going to have a very good feel for it because you're not fatigued. And then as the workout continues, you're going to get more and more fatigued and perhaps the the benefits to technique as a swim workout continues diminishes. So, you know, I would say ideally if you do want to maybe focus on the swim and, you know, if you would run, maybe say your normal swim run brick is, you know, 40 minute swim, 40 minute run. Well, maybe just allocate more to the swim. Or if on a normal run day, if you were, you had a a 50 minute run, just maybe run for 20 minutes and then throw in a uh, 20 to 30 minute swim as part of that. So that, that swim run brick is, is one of the most, just time efficient uh, brick workouts along with, you know, a bike run brick. But uh, so I think being strategic in that way is, is the best approach. Um, but, you know, in general, for most, I think the hierarchy of importance from, especially in long courses is, is bike fitness is most important followed by run fitness, followed by uh, swim. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one thing that you you mentioned there in in the context of workouts, but I want to dig into a little bit more from the context of the whole training program is uh, recovery, and uh, that's something that that's not necessarily easy, even if you're training at a lower volume. But when you factor in work and family and other obligations, then uh, it can be a challenge. So, so what, what's your take on on recovery, both uh, on a more acute scale, like after harder sessions, but also on a more chronic scale like how to make sure that that the, the training that you're doing doesn't uh, continuously add load on you that you that you can't really absorb yes so you know typically in a lower volume plan uh for working athletes the the percentage of workouts they're going to be a higher number relative to, you know, the whole plan uh, of sessions that are going to be higher intensity. And when you do higher intensity sessions, recovery becomes paramount because we're not gaining fitness while we're actually executing the workout. What what governs adaptations, it's really going to be your ability to recover afterwards. And sometimes that's hard to do in uh, if you have a lot of other life stress. So if you're working 70 hours a week and you're, you know, working, you're doing say three key intensity sessions a week, it becomes important to really be vigilant with recovery. So, so what does that look like? It looks, I mean, sleep is number one. Um, I'm a big advocate of waking up early, but if one is compromising sleep, well, that's not a sustainable thing to do. So, so the priority needs to be sleep. Everybody's different. I would say at minimum seven hours, eight is better. Nine is amazing. Um, but it, it is important to really emphasize, emphasize that. And uh, nutrition is, is important. You want to eat balanced. You want to eat well. You don't want to 
put junk into your body. Um, and hydration is, is another important thing. Um, if you're not hydrated, it's going to impact your, your ability to, to recover and then perform well in the next session. Um, so all of these are important considerations and, and those are the three most important thing, things. There are other, uh, you know, tools that people use, people like the boots, like the Normatec boots. And, you know, that, those are, those are great. Uh, you know, if, especially if you believe in them and massage is, is a great way to recover. Um, if you have certain, you know, you've tightness in certain areas and you lack mobility, then things like yoga can help and, and stretching can help. But, you know, people often, they overstretch and that is somewhat counterproductive. But, you know, when it comes to recovery, the biggest things are, uh, it's sleep, hydration and nutrition. But the other thing is just work stress, family stress, all stress, it really does inhibit physical recovery from workouts. Um, so, you know, I really think it's important just to carve out downtime where you're just not doing anything uh, because that allows you to recover from the workouts, but also life stress. So work stress and, and all the other responsibilities that you have. So if it's possible, you know, at all to try to condense and, and get work done when you're focusing on work and then really, you know, focus on doing things unrelated to triathlon and, and, you know, career or, or whatever. Uh, I think those blocks of time are extremely important just for mental well-being and mental health and, you know, also physical recovery. Google and some other companies are doing some really innovative things in, in that space where they, they're introducing, I'm not sure that they're mandatory, but at least, uh, uh, I guess that, yeah, not mandatory, but, but optional breaks for like napping and, and meditating for their employees. And, and that's part of their, <laughs> their working day. And actually, I think it makes a ton of sense. They, they're going to get that for their employees because even non-triathletes don't sleep enough in, if you look at the, the average person in, in the Western world these days. So, uh, so having the ability to get in a 30 minute nap or, or even just, uh, some time for, for some mindfulness that's, that's going to help. And, and I think that if you em approach your employer the right way, depending on what kind of company you're working for, uh, they might uh, agree that you can have a 15 minute break to, to just take a, a quick nap or, or just do some mindfulness meditation or, or something like that. So there are definitely creative ways to, to create that that's white space but at the same time i think the the most important thing is uh, as you said the sleep that you get during the night and, and trying to get at least seven hours as a as a minimum and realizing that that's when you can do all the normatex and massages and everything and those are great but but they're for muscular recovery but uh, you also uh, put a lot of stress on your nervous system and uh, that's not going to be be helped by the normatex or the massages you you really need your sleep to to get the adaptations and, and get the recovery that the nervous system requires between between sessions yes absolutely it isn't a, a sexy answer but i mean you're right it, it really does come down to sleep i mean at the end of the day it's it's the most important important thing what are some other things that uh, that we should consider when it comes to, I guess, uh, making time and saving time for for training? If we have a limited amount of time, uh, then 
it becomes even more important to to make sure that we we're actually using all the time that we really have. And sometimes I think we we don't realize that we have a little bit more time than we actually think we have, just because we might do some things uh, inefficiently in terms of streamlining things. And one of the things you mentioned already many times is the the swim run brick, which is a great great example. Or do you have some other ideas for this? Yes. So one kind of rule that I have, and it's that I sort of talk about with my athletes is is understanding that just doing doing something is better than nothing. And I kind of touched upon it earlier, wherein you know if, if I prescribe a uh, say a seventy minute run or a sixty minute run, uh, if if an athlete doesn't have time to do that, they just don't do anything. But in reality, your body, you know, incites these adaptations. The cellular signaling that sort of occurs that while you're working out and you're, that your body is essentially telling itself to make adaptations for improvement. I mean, you don't have to, a workout doesn't have to be 60 minutes or more to achieve, you know, a level of fitness benefit. So uh, one rule that I have is the 30, 45 two a day rule. And basically that just means that, you know, if you have, if you can carve out a 30 minute block and a 45 minute block anywhere in the day, you know, that is, you can drop a workout in there and you can perform extremely well at triathlon. Uh, if you are able to carve out two times a day where you're able to do a 30 minute and a 45 minute workout, consistently. So, so if you can string multiple days, multiple weeks, multiple months together, where you're getting stimulus within two disciplines a day, that can be short, i.e. 30 minutes and 45 minutes, then that's the most important thing. So, so, you know, just throw out the, uh, so obviously the, the, it's important to have a targeted plan that, and every workout should have a purpose, but what's even more important than that is just consistency. And, um, so, you know, you can roll out of bed, 45 minute cycling workout with, you know, you can scale the warm up and cool down. Uh, you can perhaps scale down the duration of, you know, a couple of the intervals or, or something like that. But the idea is to get the stimulus and you can get a great stimulus on the bike in 45 minutes if you ride indoors. And then on the lunch break, you can do a 30 minute run or right after work, you know, you can do a 30 minute run. Uh, and then right before dinner and, and that is, it's a great day. That's a great day of training. So the, all the massive sessions are not, they're, they're beneficial. Obviously specificity is important. You, you're doing an Ironman. You can't get by with 30 to 45 minutes a day of training, but every time you work out, your body is, is going to get fitter. And it's, it's, it's important to recognize that, you know, Kind of like I said, fitness is not a bank account that increases proportionate to the number of hours you put in. It's we're biological organisms, and it's 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 about doing what we can do and then setting these adaptations and and honing the engine rather than thinking about you know hitting some arbitrary volume goal each week. So so anyway, so so number one is understanding that short workouts are beneficial, and you can it's easy to to drop them drop them in. And, uh, so that's one, I guess, unique strategy for that. Maybe a time crunched athlete should, should think of, but you know, sometimes maybe it's easier to get one larger block to, to allocate, uh, one block of time in the day and then 
do a brick workout. So, um, you know, if you, the only time that you have available to work out is the morning, then you can make great gains by, you know, say you have 90 minutes in the morning, well, you know, 60 minutes main session and 30 minutes supporting session is, is, is fine to do that. But I think striving for frequency of stimulus within the disciplines is, is most important, no matter whether that's several times in the day or condensed into, to one block. And, uh, I mean, the other thing is, is figuring out how to structure a week, but have it be sort of modular. So, um, if you're traveling, for example, it's tough to swim and bike. So, you know, have a strategy to where if you're traveling, then you can, you, you focus on the run. So you have a run block of training. You can do the key swim and bike sessions, maybe right before you travel. And then you can hop right on to another bike swim session when you come back. So, uh, you know, so, so being agile with training and not looking at the training plan as something that's carved into stone, you know, it's a living, breathing uh, plan and, you know, you should have the ability to uh, switch things around. But, so, so, but one thing that I like to do as a coach is sort of try to convey the philosophy surrounding a microcycle or a week and, and try to have the athlete understand that, you know, the idea is to, you want to space out the key intensity sessions and recover in between them, but, you know, have them understand that there's a rhythm to training. There's a rhythm to a microcycle. Um, and, and once they kind of understand the rhythm, the need for recovery after key sessions and things like that, uh, they sort of get confident and they maybe have the ability to, to move things around, uh, in the most rational and, and the best way. Um, so, so yeah, so being agile is, is important as well. And I, I guess one other thing that is, is worth mentioning is, you know, if, if one is look, looking to maximize performance, uh, is the importance of body composition. So the, the fact of the matter is a major limiter when it comes to people actually, I think, achieving their potential is, is certainly training and being consistent, but it's also body composition. And, it, and if you focus on that and, and you aim to, uh, you know, strive for good body composition, that training will be easier and you'll have the ability to race better. Um, and in that vein, I think strength training is important. It's important for maintaining body composition and, and, uh, even on a low volume plan, short strength sessions, you know, they could be as short as 15, 20 minutes are important for, for performance in and of themselves, but also for injury prevention and also for body composition. Um, so, so, so these, so it isn't necessarily just the training that's important if you're time crunched. I mean, you can get better at racing by focusing on things independent of swim, bike, run. So when you start thinking about strength, you start thinking about body composition and eating well, hydrating, eating enough, but also not overeating things that are terrible for you or drinking too much alcohol, things like that. All of this added together can really make one a better athlete and maximize performance on race day. What do you think is a time efficient way to, to get strength training done? So I think that... 
so body weight exercises. If you don't have access to a gym with free weights, you can do, uh, you know, perform a great strength session just using your body weight or, you know, if you get a couple kettlebells or something. So, uh, for triathletes, you want sort of functional strength. You don't just want stringy muscles, you know, know, biceps, everybody likes the big arms, but you know, and doing curls is fine, but you really want to focus on the, the doing the strength work that's, that's efficient and that leads to gain. So when we think about auxiliary stuff or strength stability stuff, that's where bodyweight training can really uh, go a long way. So things like unilateral glute bridges, single leg squats, leg raises, um, and then core work. So planks, flutter kicks, Russian twists, uh, those those things can be done very basically anywhere in your hotel room, in the living room. Uh, and then when you're in the, the weight room, you can streamline a workout just by focusing on the core lifts, the, the compound movements. So things like deadlifts and, and squats, if you're looking for the biggest bang for your bunk, it's, it's going to be those compound movements that utilize a lot of multiple muscle groups. So you're moving a lot of weight with each rep and, uh, it's, it's more efficient than doing, you know, a bunch of tricep kickbacks or pull downs and, and preacher curls and and things that focus on maybe muscles that are small and sort of mostly irrelevant for, uh, you know, swim, bike, run. Uh, So, so focus on, on what matters in strength training and also what's convenient. Yeah, uh, and I think making a, a home-based gym, that, that deserves its own episode. But it's something that if for listeners that don't have access to a gym or it's uh, just not convenient because it might be too far away, then like you don't need a lot to to make a really effective sort of uh, home environment to do strength training. As you said, a couple of kettlebells is great. I also think that the resistance bands are superb for this and uh and then you you have some other things that you you might want to to consider like a, a pull-up bar could be useful and of course a gym mat or something like that but but that's basically all you need to to do a really really effective workout and and even if you don't have that then you can do a lot with just the the, the body weight exercises that you already mentioned sure yes yes it is uh i guess it goes back to the concept of what makes indoor cycling training so great is <laughs> that the one overarching goal is to try to minimize prep and travel time. If you're sort of a time strapped athlete and the home gym is, is a great way to do that. Any, anything that you can do to sort of lower the the time costs, but also sort of the mental costs of, of training is, is a good approach. Yeah. I, I have an athlete that uh, he recently moved houses and I uh, realized it isn't possible for everyone because they moved into a, a slightly bigger house. So he had uh, the basement to turn into a pain cave essentially. But uh, if you have a, a basement like that and you can do that, what he did was to basically, he didn't just get the minimal equipment, but he got a squat track and uh, and different sets of weights. And, and I told him at first that, uh, well, don't, don't you have a gym at close by because you're it's going to be difficult for you to get like all the ways that you want to do to be able to really progress with the, the free weights but actually he got more than enough or enough of the weights that was needed and uh, and the total cost ended up being surprisingly low like you don't need to be a member of a 
uh, of a gym for for many months to to offset that with just building your home based gym. And I was surprised to find that because I thought it would be a, a much more expensive affair to to build a build out a fairly well uh, well sorted home based gym. But it turned out that that it really wasn't. Exactly. I know uh, Craigslist. I always see people selling their old. Uh, it was like a classified you know, website yeah. in the yeah. US or, or Facebook marketplace, people just giving them away for free. So it's pretty darn easy to, uh, to get some free weights or, or even, I don't know, the old machines because it's taking up space in uh, you know, some people's homes and, and they don't want it. They'd much rather somebody come and haul it away for free. Mm. So. This has been really, really useful, and uh, and I think this is a good place to wrap up this discussion. But uh, before we go, uh, we will, of course, do the rapid-fire questions. And uh, the first one is, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to triathlon? Um, related to triathlon, it would probably be the Training Peaks coaches blog. Uh, so that's on Training Peaks, and basically it's composed of coaches from all over the world contributing articles and and that's useful because um, it's a good way to uh, to hear learn about new studies related to you know training exercise science and uh, I think that as, as a coach it, it's important to have this insatiable thirst for new information and and uh, self-improvement so I think that reading about what other coaches have to say and their experiences and, and uh, is important. And that Training Peaks is a great source for uh, good articles and blog entries related to triathlon and, uh, you know, sort of the latest advances and, and sort of perspectives and thinking related to the sport. And what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Um, personally waking up early and, uh, has helped because as the day goes on, at least personally, the, this brain fog sort of sets in and other life responsibilities kind of come up, even if you don't expect them. So the morning is a good time because at least personally, there's just mental clarity and it's a guaranteed time where there won't be any interruptions. So as far as training, triathlon training goes, the morning is a great time to you know, focus on executing the, the key session for the day. Um, but it's also just a good time to, to gain perspective on the world and kind of prepare for the day. You feel like you get a jump start in the world by waking up early. Um, and it, it also sets the tone. So I think waking up early and feeding your brain with good information, good content, maybe some good uh, inspirational or motivational readings or uh, or videos is, is a great way to start the day. And uh, I, I think that it's just important just for mental well-being to, to have that time to, to oneself to uh, just reflect, create a game plan for the day and accomplish what's most important. And finally, what do we should have known or done differently at some point in your career? So, uh, w one thing, you know, when I, when I was younger and, you know, running and in high school or college, it's, it's, I think I had maybe a co more common perspective mentally or psychologically towards endurance sports, which is like, oh, I have to perform well, or I need to win or, or whatever. But, uh, 
one thing that I think helped me enjoy endurance sports more or enjoy life more is just sort of develop a, a more uh, healthy and productive perspective on endurance training or on triathlon. And just the idea that, you know, you can't control what happens to you. You can just control your response. So I think it's just kind of a good rule for endurance athletes in general um, for racing, for example, when a lot of things can go wrong and you don't have control over certain aspects of the race, but you know, you do have control over your response to them and what you do in the moment. And, you know, even if it's a bad race or something bad happens, you don't perform well, as long as you know that you did your best and that you were calm and you responded to the best of your ability. Well, you know, that's a, that's a win. So, um, so to answer your question, I think just developing a, a good perspective towards triathlon and working on the, the psychological aspects of that is, is important. And uh, it's helped me become a, a better athlete, a better coach, a better uh, just human being. So uh, I guess that's, that's my answer to that one. Yeah, great, great answer. So finally, where can the listeners find out uh, more about you and check out what you got going on? Um, so they can visit my website, www.workingtriathlete.com. Um, there's some information there, some articles. And uh, I also wrote a book called The Working Triathlete, which is available on Amazon or one can download that directly from uh, my website, www.workingtriathlete.com. Could find me on Instagram at coach underscore Geringer.com. Um, so yeah, feel free to, to check out those uh, sources, the, the book, the website articles, et cetera. And everybody should not hesitate to, to reach out to me with questions or uh, comments and, and and whatnot. Excellent. Thank you so much, Conrad, for, for coming on. This has been really great. And uh, I know that the listeners will get a lot of, a lot of value from, from this interview. So, so thank you once again. Great. No, thanks, Michael. I enjoyed it. And uh, uh, you have a, a great day. I hope that you enjoyed that interview and found it useful. It should be highly relevant for most of our listeners, I'm sure. There was one thing that I wanted to add to the interview that uh, me and Conrad discussed after uh, the interview, after we stopped, pressed stop record, and that was about how your life stress also impacts on how much training stress you can absorb. And the thing that we discussed and that I want to point out now is that you can you can choose to a degree how much stress or how much strain you experience from external stressors like problems at work, and and so on it is to a degree something that you can choose like how you react to stress can be highly different for two people even though the actual external stressor like a problem coming up at work and it can be the same problem can be the exact same but person one might be pretty chill about it and not let it get to them too much and person b can get highly anxious and things like that and Clinical anxiety, of course, is, is one thing, but there is what there there is an aspect of you being able to manage your reaction to stress, and that's what we wanted to mention here. That uh, as somebody who has a limited time available to train and a limited ability to absorb additional 
training stress, choosing how you react and trying to minimize how you react to stressors and minimize the stress in that way is another trick that you can use. Trick is a bad word. Uh, another piece of advice for how you can maximize the the absorption of training load that you that you can get on that limited ability that you you have due to other commitments like work and family and so on so that was a long-winded explanation but i hope that i made it pretty clear you can find the show notes for this episode as usual on that and there will be links to plenty of related episodes there and also those links are in the episode description in your podcast app next monday i interview pete magill who is a real superstar in running a Masters World and American record holder and somebody who has uh, run a sub 15 minute 5k at the age of 49 and uh, honestly too many accolades to list uh, but uh, his CV is long and that episode will be a special one on run training and I have to say it's a really good interview so you have to make sure that you don't miss that. If you aren't already subscribed, of course, I highly recommend that you do so because then you will automatically get the episodes as they are released. And also, I appreciate any help I can get with spreading the word about the podcast. So please do tell your friends and uh, training partners about the podcast, even if they're not triathletes. Any endurance athlete can find episodes that are relevant for them. And uh, also, if you have a minute, take that minute and go and rate and review the podcast. It really helps a lot. Big thanks to Roka for sponsoring the episode. You can get 20% off your order on roka.com with the promo code TTS, all caps. And thank you to Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy and get your first box or tube of electrolyte product for free with the promo code thattriathlonshow, all one word, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.